Hello, tech enthusiasts. Welcome to What the Tech, the podcast series sponsored by ProServe IT. We're here to shed light on the complexities of the technological realm. As we journey through our comprehensive series on infrastructure this month, you're joining us for the first episode out of nine. In this installment, we're navigating the intricate pathways of planning your Azure environment using the cloud adoption framework. As we break it down, you'll glean insights into Azure landing zones, the importance of scalability, and the strategies essential for your cloud journey. If you ever wondered about the blueprint of a successful Azure environment, this episode will give you a clear roadmap. So gear up listeners for an enlightening tech expedition. Good afternoon, everyone. So from an agenda perspective, several topics we're looking to cover. First is going to be an overview of the Microsoft Cloud Adoption Framework for Azure. Talk about defining your strategy, putting together your cloud adoption plan, Azure landing zones, cloud operating models, Azure landing zone architecture. Starting with an overview of the cloud adoption framework. So this is a series of documents and processes that Microsoft has put into place to help customers plan for their journey to Azure. But as with many different types of initiatives, the knowledge you have six months into a project is obviously very different than what you typically know on day one. And often if you knew on day one, what you do down six months down the road, you would make changes. So the intent of the cloud adoption framework is to ask some of those questions you may not know to ask up front to help you put together a solid framework or foundation to help support your Azure business moving forward. The intent of the Azure adoption framework, cloud adoption framework or CAF, because I may use that as well, is really to align business, people, and technology, right? It's taking all the different disparate elements, documentation, tools, templates, best practices, and building a cohesive strategy out of that. We're also looking to balance between things like control and stability and speed and results, right? Often from an IT perspective, we look to, to jump into things and we want to start getting the technology out to start being able to leverage it. But we do need to balance that with stability, control, make sure that we have proper security measures in place and, and the business is aligned as far as what we're trying to achieve. And really the design of CAF or Cloud Adoption Framework to try to help us find that balance. The cloud adoption framework itself is broken up into multiple sections. So along the top, we have our defining strategy, our planning, our readiness, and then adoption. And then underlying all of these, we have both governance and management. One of the things that Microsoft has presented as part of the cloud, cloud adoption framework or CAF is they provide a wealth of materials to help you start your journey. So these are a couple examples of some of the cloud readiness tools that Microsoft has provided. The cloud journey tracker, is something that you can use to help determine your cloud adoption needs, find recommendations and stuff that's specific to your use case. The strategic migration assessment and readiness tool or SMART is a series of questions to help you understand where you are across multiple categories to help you identify any gaps that you may have. Maybe it's a training, maybe it's security, maybe it's, it could be a number of different things, governance. This is really designed to help you understand that there is a potential gap there. So that you can take the time to, to address that and ensure that you have that again, solid foundation. So as you step into Azure, there's no surprises. Thirdly, we have you do deal governance for the business. This is there to help you identify gaps from a governance perspective with the intent of you being able to ideally address whatever those gaps are early days, rather than once you've actually stepped into the Azure world. 
all through the various phases of the adoption framework, Microsoft does provide a range of tools, templates, and assessments. Naturally, these are all free. They're available online. These can be great tools to help customers be nudged in the right direction or give some guidance as to how best to tackle some of these different elements. As you work your way through each of the different phases of the cloud adoption framework, there's going to be reference material available to you along with tools where it makes sense. So to start, we're going to focus on our defining your strategy and our planning. And really, this is largely the key area, I think, for cloud adoption frameworks. For many of us, readiness is where we start. We have a basic understanding of what we're trying to achieve. We start dropping workloads into Azure. Azure consumption or usage tends to grow much faster than we might have anticipated. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a fully fleshed out Azure environment where we're supporting multiple production workloads. And then we're struggling to try to bring a measure of control or consistency across that. Through the strategy definition and planning phase, our intent is to plan a lot of those elements out to ensure that, again, we have that solid framework in place so that as our needs grow within Azure, regardless of how fast or slow, we know that we have all those foundational elements in place to be able to support that. Defining our strategy. So this involves motivations. So understanding what your company's drivers are for moving to the cloud, business outcomes. So what you're hoping to achieve, business justification. So this again is supporting your motivations and outcomes. So this is things like cost, cost analysis and things of that nature, or show that how you're actually going to achieve those business outcomes with Azure. And then lastly, identifying our first project where we basically take all of the stuff that we've learned through the strategy phase and determine where we want to first apply that into our journey to Azure. When we talk about adoption motivations, there are a number of different categories or different topics where Azure often will come up. So if we look to the left at critical business events, data center exit is a great example. So if you are currently in a data center contract or have hardware that's an end of life that's looking for a large capital investment, exploring Azure can often make a lot of sense to see whether it's going to make sense before recommitting yourself to maybe a three or a five year term. If you deal a lot with mergers, acquisitions, or divestiture, being able to leverage a cloud solution can often make it easier to both integrate solutions or divest areas where possible, just because we don't have any of those artificial constraints that we would have with on-prem infrastructure. And we have the cloud available to us with essentially unlimited resources. It gives us a lot more flexibility in how we actually manage things. Reduction in capital expenses. As mentioned, Azure is really an OpEx initiative, right? So rather than building or buying new servers and SANs and all the other elements that you require on-prem and trying to pre-predict what your usage might be over the next three to five years during the life cycle of that hardware. In Azure, we don't tend to care about any of that. We're really just focused on today because everything is OpEx and it gives us a lot more flexibility. And to support for mission-critical technologies. So a great example of this is, as I'm sure most of you are aware, Server 2008 and 2008 R2 went end of life January of 2020. By moving those workloads to Azure, Microsoft actually provides an additional three years of security updates. And so a number of customers that we had in that sort of timeframe, we didn't have a clear path forward for those servers. We're able to import them into Azure, ensuring getting the additional security updates and giving them additional breathing room to, to plan out what their next steps are for that server. The same is true for SQL. So again, any of the workloads that you have that are leveraging Microsoft SQL, 2012, if you port those into Azure, you'll gain the additional three years of updates. This is going to be really important coming up as January of 20, October of 2023, our server 2012 and 2012 R2 goes end of life. And so again, while that does sound sort of a ways away, but we're just over a year out, that time obviously does disappear quickly. So if you have a number of workloads that are sitting on server 2012 or, excuse me, that you don't have a clear path forward for, you don't necessarily know 
how, what the next iteration of that solution is going to look like by moving those workloads to Azure, you give yourself an additional three years of, of breathing room to help ensure that you're not exposing the business to unnecessary risk while you figure out what that long-term strategy is going to be. Compliance and data sovereignty. So again, Azure being a global infrastructure, this makes it much easier to support operations in disparate environments. So maybe you have Canadian operations, US operations, and European. Because we have Azure data centers in each of those locations, it's far easier for us to be able to deploy infrastructure specific to those regions, ensure that we're meeting, we're meeting any of those regulatory requirements or compliance requirements and such. Reducing disruptions and improving stability. Again, one of the benefits of Azure is because it is a Microsoft hosted data center, we've got multiple layers of redundancy at the hardware level, the internet level, power. We ha typically have far less risk associated with running in a cloud-based solution like that because we don't have any sort of single points of failure. To the right, looking at migration motivations, cost savings, this can be a key driver for moving to Azure, especially again, when you're looking for that CapEx to OpEx. Reducing complexity. One of the benefits that Azure does bring is because there's a common interface across all of the Azure technologies, there's a very comfortable look and feel to deploying each of the net new technologies. It can make it much easier for organizations who might not have all that foundational knowledge on a, maybe a SIM or another security product. Being able to deploy in Azure is typically much more efficient than it would be to build that same solution on-prem. Optimization of internal operations again, taking advantage of those Azure benefits, ideally consolidating, standardizing our, how we actually manage our environment. Agility, as I mentioned, Azure is for all intents and purposes, largely infinite resources, right? So if we do have a need to pivot within the business, leveraging a cloud solution like Azure, we can do that very quickly. We can have a virtual machine or a series of VMs spun up in a matter of minutes, right? So if we do see an opportunity that the business wants to leverage or take advantage of with Azure, we can jump on that very quickly versus an on-prem solution where we might be dealing with hardware constraints on our existing infrastructure. And then we're looking at having to buy net new hardware to be able to support this new initiative. As I'm sure all of you are aware, today's a great example of that, where we have all these challenges in actually acquiring hardware. And there's often delays, sometimes for months, right? So it doesn't give us that same ability to be flexible. Preparing for new technical capabilities. So we have clear understanding of what we do on-prem. We do have a number of different capabilities built into Azure. We do have the ability to lift and shift just what we have on-prem, ideally in an optimized fashion. But we also have the ability to take advantage of things like platform as a service or PaaS, where we start moving away from the artificial constraints of a VM. And all these doors start to open up as you move into Azure. And then scaling to meet market demands or geographic demands. Again, because Azure is available throughout the world, it makes it very easy for us to scale up or scale down, depending on what the needs of the business are. Innovation motivations, much the same as we covered through the migration motivations. The only one I would call out that might be a, that's a little bit different here is improving customer experience or engagements. This is another example where, again, because we have all those resources available to us in Azure, we can be very responsive to any sort of end user or customer challenges, right? If we have a virtual machine that maybe has four cores and eight gigs of memory, we find that's insufficient for our needs. With a couple clicks and a quick reboot, we can double those resources or quadruple those resources, whatever's necessary. And so there's not a whole lot of planning that needs to happen in advance. It's just a matter of finding that maintenance window, rebooting, and hopefully providing a better overall end user or customer experience. Identifying business outcomes. So this is important to help ensure that the various stakeholders within the business have a clear idea or definition of what the desired outcomes from an Azure Mover are going to be. It could be fiscal outcomes. 
So it might be increased revenue. It could be savings in cost or driving profits. Maybe it's time to market and the ability to provision very quickly. And again, that whole agile thought that we mentioned in the last slides. Global access and data sovereignty. Again, if you are dealing with different, different offices across different geographies that may have different requirements, we can use to support that in Azure. Customer engagement outcomes. So this refers back to what we talked about just a moment ago, where again, we have the ability to deploy and to modify customer-facing infrastructure very quickly in Azure. Highly available global applications. The Azure infrastructure is very robust. Each of their different geographies have multiple data centers. In Canada here, we have Canada Central, which is in Toronto. We have Canada East, which is in Quebec City. This gives us the ability to span Canada and provide proper disaster recovery. But we also have a wide range of solutions across the United States and Europe and Asia and such. Security and compliance. So Microsoft has done a really good job of ensuring that their Azure data centers are compliant with a wide range of standards. So for those organizations that do have compliance requirements or need to maintain a certain level of, of certification, leveraging Azure can often help with that because Microsoft has already obtained those certifications for the Azure infrastructure or data centers. That will often help customers who are trying to achieve those varying certifications with ISO, whether it's NIST or any of a number of other ones, SOC. All of these things can be far easier when your infrastructure is already running in Azure because you're in an environment that is already compliant. Developing business justification. So as with many things, there's a lot of misconceptions around the cloud and what it actually means for the business. And so when going through this strategy definition component, it allows us to have the conversations with the different business units or stakeholders within the business to help address some of the concerns and challenges that people may perceive with a solution like Azure. And so maybe misconceptions around costing. OpEx is better than CapEx or cloud is always cheaper. Or all these types of different competing, competing thought processes can often cloud what you're trying to achieve within Azure. Same when we talk about things like security or how quick or easy it is to move to the cloud. Now, this is our opportunity to have these conversations to set realistic expectations for the business to identify where there might be potential challenges, but also addressing some of those preconceptions that users may have to help provide a sense of reassurance to the business that moving to cloud is not necessarily what they think it is. It's actually potentially a much better scenario for them. Identifying our first project. As I'm sure most of you can imagine, the move to Azure is typically a multi-stage journey. So we typically look building our initial Azure environment after we've done our framework, building connectivity, deploying our first workloads, validating what that experience is like, learning from that experience, and then taking that knowledge and applying it to our remaining migration project. So that's typically what we want to identify here as part of our strategy definition is figure out what that first project really should look like. It should align with your motivations for cloud adoption. So whatever your drivers are for moving to the cloud, that first workload should ideally tie into that. It should also show progress towards your defined business outcomes. And so we're trying to check the box here to make sure that not only we're showing how easy it is potentially to move workloads to, the Azure, to Azure, but also some of the benefits we're going to see and how it aligns to the business. As mentioned, this first project is really a source of learning. There, everything that you would be doing to this point within the cloud adoption framework is all really a paper exercise, right? So there's a lot of theoretical in place. This first project migration is really what's there to help you allow the rubber to hit the road and really give you a sense of what the actual experience is and to help you understand whether the structure that you've put in place or the mindset that you have is going to be accurate. When we look at examples for first projects, there are a couple of different ways in which we can tackle this and how Azure can potentially tie into your business. So one example we see is around critical business event. 
right? So for customers who require disaster recovery, maybe you have a disaster recovery site and it's nearing end of life or it needs to be refreshed. Maybe you don't have disaster recovery because it hasn't been a business requirement historically, but it is becoming one. With Azure, it's very simple for us to set up Azure Site Recovery to introduce that DR capability. And this can often be a, a great initial candidate for organizations who might not want to step in immediately with deploying production workloads, but they still want to start to get into the Azure world and start getting a sense of how the technology works. Migration motivations. So starting with non-critical workload, this is another great candidate we see. So if you don't want to worry about disaster recovery, maybe you have that handled already, or you want to move into Azure before focusing on that. Often what we'll do is start with a, a small workload or a simple workload, something that's non-critical. Because again, this, since this is a learning opportunity or a learning experience, and we're proving our theories, we obviously typically don't want to start with something that's actually mission critical. We want to start with something that we have a little more flexibility in how we actually support. The third scenario that we often see is around dev test, right? So for those organizations that do have a development arm and are trying to support dev and UAT and test scenarios pre-production, that can sometimes be a challenge for organization, especially given the resource requirements for those multiple stages. Leveraging a solution like Azure, where we can spin infrastructure up in a very quick fashion and tear down just as quick, can often be a great candidate for first, first project to move into Azure to gain some level of comfort with the solution. So this is an example of one of the documents that Microsoft does provide. This is your cloud strategy and plan template. Really, this is just designed to give you sort of the framework for the document outline all the different elements that you've been collecting together, right? Understanding your strategy, your motivation, your business outcomes. This is really just provides a guidance on, on how to basically present the information back to the business. Put together your plan. So under our planning phase, we have a couple different categories. So we have rationalizing our digital estate, where we're basically validating what we actually have on-prem and making sure we understand how it will transition to the cloud. Initial organizational alignment, so again, making sure that we're balancing between governance and our cloud adoption strategy and timing. Skills readiness plan, where we're helping understand how ready our staff are to support a cloud initiative. And then taking those different elements and building out that actionable cloud adoption plan itself. Taking it a little bit deeper, rationalizing digital estate is really around understanding what your environment looks like today and how it's going to transition into Azure. So one of the biggest challenges that we see with customers when they're trying to plan for Azure is assuming that what they have today is just gonna lift and shift and just migrate into Azure as is and life will be good. And that's often the case because one of the things to keep in mind with Azure is whether you're using 10% of a VM or 90% of a VM, you're always paying 100% of a VM cost. And so understanding what that server's actual utilization is while it sits on-prem can help us make sure that we size things appropriately in Azure. The other thing we're able to do is map out dependencies and interconnectivities. And this can be important as we look to bundle together applications and servers to act as sort of migration groups, right? Maybe we have a, an application that has a, a traditional application front end and a SQL backend database. We obviously recognize if we were to move that application to Azure, we'd want to move both the front end and SQL database at the same time, because we know SQL can have challenges with latency. That all makes sense. There's always possibilities that, that SQL server is actually being used for other small elements within the business as well. And it might be from years past, it might predate the current staff, but understanding that and being able to map that out and take that into account as part of our planning is important to ensure that we have a positive experience through our migration as we're not missing any of those sort of elements. Rationalization, you have a couple different ways in which you can tackle this. So in some situations, we'll take a look at the infrastructure as a whole, 
and build it what that overarching strategy is going to be. In other scenarios, you might take more of an incremental approach where you really only hone in and focus on a subset of your server environment, rationalize that, validate its requirements, map it, get it migrated to Azure, and then come back and work through your next 10 applications instead. Output of the rationalization is a prioritized backlog of assets. So this again, we're assessing what we have on-prem, we're prioritizing, we're making sure we understand what its utilization is, how it's leveraged inside the environment and we haven't missed for anything. That's really what we're looking to achieve through this rationalization process. The last thing we're looking to work through is costing, right? So this is obviously the make or, make or break for most Azure projects. The migration itself is one thing, but you know, it's, it's a limited point in time. Obviously, once we're in Azure, we're now starting to pay Azure consumption month over month. And so being able to adequately understand what our Azure consumption costs are going to be, being able to ensure that we right size so that we're not paying more than we have to in Azure. These are all important elements to help build up that business case and tell the business what to expect in the future. The last thing we want is to set an expectation for Azure consumption, find out that it was erroneous and that our actual Azure costs are double or triple what we had projected to the business. So having that information front and validated is a hugely, hugely important component. When we talk about initial organizational alignment, so again, this is a balance between your cloud adoption team and governance. Uh, it's a whole speed versus control, right? So this is similar to what we mentioned earlier in the deck, where, you know, from an IT perspective, we typically want to move quickly. We often will have a business need that we're trying to address. Azure provides sort of an open playground to be able to deploy a lot of these technologies. There can be an incentive from an IT perspective because of the pressures being applied to look to adopt that relatively quickly. But at the same time, we do want to ensure that we're not introducing unnecessary risk, right? And that's where the control component comes in. So it's making sure that we have alignment across these different elements of the business to make sure that everybody is aligned and on the same page. As we move forward, we're not causing any unexpected issues. Skills readiness. So again, a lot of the skills that you have today on-prem are portable to the cloud. The thing is, there are some unique elements of Azure, slight differences in how we actually manage technology in the cloud. That's important to understand but where your staff are today identifying those gaps and then figuring out how you're going to address them so that your staff can take advantage of the cloud solution. Great example is a developer. The solution that you use on-prem today, likely Visual Studio and things of that nature, is great. And obviously there's going to be a comfort level there. As we look to move development workloads to Azure, we do still have tools like Visual Studio, but we also have DevOps and a bunch of other capabilities that are focused around development workloads that are built natively into Azure. And for our developers, we want to make sure that they are empowered with the net skills and the knowledge necessary to be able to take advantage of that shift. And this is true across all of our various skill sets. There's always going to be slight nuances or differences in how we manage things at Azure. Cloud adoption plan. So this is really where we're taking all of our different strategy elements and we're creating the actionable plan out of. So through this process, we want to ensure that we've completed all of our prerequisites, that we have that everything addressed that we need to make the project successful. We want to ensure that we've defined and prioritized our workloads. We have a clear vision on what we're looking to move to Azure and what we're looking to achieve out of that. Asset alignment. So making sure that we can understand what elements are required to support those workloads. We want to make sure that SQL example, for example, that we don't have outliers that we didn't take into account and that we know exactly what the ramifications or results are going to be of a migration of any particular server. Review rationalization. This is to help us really determine whether there are going to be scenarios, or many scenarios actually, where it probably makes sense to just lift and shift the server you have. What you have on-prem works. Again, we might need to look at resizing it somewhat just to make sure that the last thing we want is to move a server to Azure that's running with 30% utilization 
because your cost is going to be substantially higher than what's actually required for that virtual machine. But for most customers, that's often their first step is migrating and lifting and shifting on-prem infrastructure. You do have other options. And this is part of that rationalization process is understanding, do I want to migrate that existing server or do I want to build net new in the cloud and sort of transition, right? Maybe this type of a journey will give us the opportunity to take advantage of a newer version of Windows or a newer version of our application. The other option we potentially have is moving away from virtual machines for some applications and moving to what we call platform as a service or PaaS. So this is leveraging cloud services that are artificially constrained by the boundaries of a virtual machine. And you really just pick for the consumption you use. So that SQL example, as I said, but you're typically looking to size SQL based off of whatever your peak is, right? You have your peaks and valleys depending on what that application is doing. And often while you're building to that peak, you might only hit that peak point a couple times a month. And so you may have a number of hours through, through the course of the month where your machine is really running at less utilization, 30, 40% utilization again. But you need to scale that VM to be able to handle those peaks. By moving away from the artificial constraints of a virtual machine and moving to a PaaS offering, we start just paying for the consumption itself and we're not as constrained as we would be with a virtual machine. So understanding which workloads might be good candidates for that and may make sense to look to, to move initially is a part of that rationalization component. Defining iterations and releases, as I mentioned, the move to Azure is not a one-stop journey, right? It's typically going to involve multiple iterations. And so this is mapping to make sure that we understand what a given phase or release looks like, how we're going to manage that, what we're going to learn from that, and how that's going to iterate or modify our future iterations. And then timelines, being able to set this and define this to the business is obviously helpful. If we can establish rough timelines, we're able to set that a realistic expectation for the business so that they're not expecting that we'll be in Azure tomorrow. They understand roughly when they can start to see results and can start to measure the value of what Azure brings to the table. So. Now that we've gone through our strategy definition and our planning phase, we're now into our readiness phase. And this is where we're ready to actually start to implement Azure into the environment. With that, we're going to step into Azure landing zones. So Azure landing zones are basically create a blueprint of how we want to deploy Azure within the environment. And with that blueprint, we have a number of different options and how we would tackle Azure based off of the specific use case you have. So it is important to understand what you're looking to achieve out of Azure because that will help ensure that the cloud foundation you put in place, it's designed to meet your specific business needs. And that's something generalized or may not completely align. Landing zones are for a number of different things. So for starting a journey based on best practice. So again, the benefit of a landing zone is, as I said, it's really a blueprint. It allows for a consistent approach to deploying workloads to our infrastructure within Azure and gives us flexibility in how we actually deploy Azure to support maybe different geographies or customer-facing environment, where we do need to set up maybe different subscriptions or different resource groups in Azure, some sort of logical breaking point between those elements, but we want to ensure there's a level of consistency. Creating well-designed foundations, again, this is allowing us to map out what our Azure infrastructure is going to look like, what security we're putting in place, how we're defining our network topology, how we're managing access control and such, and making sure that we have all those clearly defined and mapped out as part of our landing zone before we actually do the implementation process. As noted, which is there to provide consistent, repeatable environment designs. So maybe you're a smaller organization where you're only ever really going to build a single environment within Azure, which is perfectly fine. For other organizations, though, maybe you have the requirement of both an internal infrastructure as well as client-facing, right? So you're going to build two different ecosystems. But again, you want the consistency across the board. Similarly, if you're an organization that maybe is dealing in multiple geographies where you have Canadian operations, U.S. operations, and EU, 
We're going to have different requirements based off of each of those geographies, data residency and such, but we still want to ensure that the way that we structure and build out Azure is consistent, consistent across the board. And landing zones are de designed again to provide that blueprint, to help automate some of these processes and help ensure that we have that repeatable process. Making repeatable best practices, again, that's just replicating or leveraging the existing, the knowledge that we invest into that landing zone itself to help ensure that again, that we have that consistent result. I mean, it also takes into account the, the technical skills required for your team. So Azure landing zones are really designed to help with scale, security, governance, networking, and identity, right? So this is designed to take all of those core elements that are going to be important to your Azure environment moving forward, ensuring that you have proper governance in place, you have the right elements of security in place, how you're managing networking, both within Azure, as well as how it communicates back to maybe your on-prem or to client-facing environments, how you're managing identities and access control, all these elements typically tie in together to create that Azure landing zone. It is designed to help both migrations and new apps. So again, this is a, it's not specific to a given solution set. It's a broader set of principles and guidance and solutions that we want to put in place. So that depending on, regardless of what we need in Azure over the, however long we end up using Azure as it is, we want to try to build a framework that is not only going to support us today, but it's also going to support our needs for the future. And this is where we get into the last bullet there about not differentiating between IaaS or PaaS. As I mentioned, PaaS or platform as a service, especially with workloads like SQL or our web applications and such, there's a lot of value in potentially looking at that. But many organizations are not ready on day one. Typically, you're going to take your existing servers, you're going to lift and shift them into Azure. And then over time, ideally, you're going to start to adopt some of those enhanced services. But when we're building our landing zone, we want to ensure that we're accounting for that possibility down the road, right? that it's not an outlier in the design that we've actually put together. Design areas for our landing zones, so we're building an Active Directory, Azure Active Directory tenant, identity and access management, resource organizations. So we get how we're going to manage from the hierarchy of data or infrastructure within Azure, how we're managing network topology as well as connectivity. Again, maybe that's connectivity back to your head office or branch offices, the center, or even internet facing for client resources. And on the compliance side, we have things like security and governance and management, as well as platform automation and DevOps. So again, figuring out areas in which we can automate that process, we can provide that repeatable, predictable result. All these elements typically tie into what we consider an Azure landing zone. The operating model. So this ties back to understanding what you're looking to achieve within Azure. So we have multiple different potential foundations that we can leverage, right? So maybe we are not worried about the bigger picture. We just have an immediate need and we want to deploy infrastructure in Azure. We're really just worried about that workload itself and not the framework around that. So that is one, one potential possibility. Our second scenario is where we know that we're going to be deploying multiple workloads into Azure. And we actually want to build out that landing zone to again, encompass those different workloads and to make sure we have that consistent result. And we have those foundational utilities that we can use to support all those different workloads as well. The third option is where, again, maybe we're dealing with multiple geographies or we're dealing with both internal and client facing environments. Each of those are likely going to have individual landing zones. And then we can leverage things like our platform foundation utilities to help manage all of them. And it sits outside of each of the individual landing zones themselves. There are multiple levels of complexity. There we go. <laughs> that are available to us when building out these foundations as well. So whether we're looking at decentralized operations, again, it's just, you know what, I've got an immediate need. We don't necessarily have a vision for what Azure is going to look like in the future but we have a short-term need and we want to take advantage of decentralized operations and just get that workload up and running. Central operations is where we actually build out our landing zone and foundation. Enterprise operations is 
a good example, again, internal and external facing environments where we've got maybe one landing zone that supports all our internal business operations, one that supports our client facing operations. And then we have our distributed operations where again, we're probably dealing with multiple geographies. Each of these, as we work our way up the chart, as you can obviously recognize, this is induce, introducing additional environmental complexity. There's additional considerations that we want to take into account when we're building our foundation and more when we're building out our Azure landing zone. We want to make sure that we're accounting for what's our desired objective. What is our infrastructure going to look like? Obviously, there's going to be some variance as you move forward in time. It's hard to predict everything, but the goal here is to provide at least a baseline understanding of where you think the business is going to go and then build the model that maps to that. So there's a further breakdown to help you understand what category your business may sit in. It's understanding what the motivation is for the business, whether it's innovation, whether it's control, whether it's integration of disparate systems or disparate environments. What's the scope of your per portfolio? Are we just working on a workload? Are we looking at a landing zone? Are we looking at multiple landing zones, which we would consider a cloud platform? Or do we have that complex portfolio where we, again, dealing with different geographies and different requirements? The last consideration is accountability, right? Who's actually going to manage or be responsible for the various decisions within the environment. And this, these, whether it's workload team, central IT, or some sort of mix, all of these are sort of decision points that can help you identify where you sit from a, an operating model perspective and what's going to make sense for you or a business as the business. Landing zone architecture. So there are a number of components that tie into Azure and into an Azure landing zone. For those who have some familiarity with Azure, you'll recognize it is a very robust and complex environment. There are a lot of moving parts to it. And when we talk about building out a landing zone, we can either take advantage or manage a subset of that, or look at the broader whole and try to introduce solutions that are going to address all the varying instances of, or applications, workloads that we're going to look to run within Azure. We are looking at determining what our target end state is and ensuring that we're building out an architecture that's going to support that. We recognize we're going to need to scale it and mature the environment. And so maybe we take into account that we're a smaller organization or sorry, we have a smaller Azure footprint that we need today. And so we're going to start a landing zone just based around that. But as our maturity level evolves and as the needs of the business continue to grow, we're going to mature out from that. But we want to ensure we have that foundation. Customer and partner practices for environment designs across Microsoft. So Microsoft does provide some baseline landing zone templates that we'll talk about in a moment. Partners such as ProServe IT can also help with that being what that architecture should look like to support your business. And then lastly, we want to ensure that we have that foundation for management, governance, and security, because those are the elements that matter most, right? It's great to be able to provide services, but we want to make sure that we have the right rigor in place to effectively support that without introducing unnecessary risk to the business. So as mentioned, Microsoft has a couple landing zone templates that are available for download. So if you log into the Azure portal and you search for landing zones, you will see that there are two that come up. The first is start small and expand. So this is again, where maybe you're looking at a smaller subset of your business or your more immediate needs. And so you're looking to build a landing zone to meet those requirements with the understanding that as your maturity level grows with Azure and as the needs of the business evolve, you're going to expand further and further out. So the intent of this is to help ensure that we have the minimum data necessary, put together a solid foundation for Azure, but not necessarily get tied into all the various nuances that we might need to consider as we look at the broader whole. This is where enterprise scale templates come into play, where this is a much broader, much bigger conversation where we are truly trying to map out. Maybe it's again, that multi-geography scenario where we know we're going to have US, Canadian and European operations. It's mapping out what that actually means for the business and how we're going to map or define Azure 
how we're going to apply security. This could be hugely beneficial if you happen to have separate IT teams in each of those different geographies. Rather than having them run their own environment and deploy as they need, looking at an enterprise scale landing zone or implementation allows you to bring these different IT teams together to collectively build out what your overarching strategy is going to be across Azure. Thank you everyone for taking some time out of your day to spend with us. Wow, what an awesome journey through the architectural intricacies of Azure and the cloud adoption framework. We hope you found today's episode enlightening. Here at What The Tech, sponsored by Poster by T, our goal is to demystify tech for you. Today, you learned about the strategic importance of planning your Azure environment, the essence of landing zones, and the broader vision of cloud scalability. But don't go just yet. In our next episode, we're taking you deeper into the cloud as we delve into episode two, migrating to the cloud with Azure. It's time to unlock the strategies and steps crucial for a seamless cloud migration. So keep those headphones close and join us next time for another riveting episode of What the Tech. Until then, stay tech savvy and curious.